welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about how we speak to people different from ourselves and what role the things that we hold sacred might play in that. In this episode, I spoke to Tom Chivers. Tom is an author currently writing a book about AI. He's a science journalist and until recently was science correspondent at BuzzFeed. Prior to that, he worked as assistant comment editor at The Telegraph and in various other journalistic roles. I first came across him because he wrote a beautiful and honest piece about the existential bleakness of being an atheist and being scared of death. And I was impressed by his willingness to break ranks with his tribe and speak so humanly. We first recorded this podcast at BuzzFeed HQ, but the sound quality in their cavernous office was dreadful. But it was intimidatingly cool, as you might imagine. The meeting room was called Brass Eye, and I did pocket probably a few too many of the free snacks on the way out. So not a complete waste, although looking back, I really hope I didn't contribute to their financial difficulties. In this conversation, which we re-recorded in the much cosier and less cutting-edge Theos office, you'll hear us having a really honest and personal chat about why we believe the things that we do, the nature of evidence, science and truth as a sacred value for him, and why he thinks no one is to blame for anything. I found it an incredibly stimulating conversation, and I hope that you enjoy listening. I'm going to kick off with the question that I'm asking uh, everybody and I will clarify it again because regular listeners of the podcast will have got their head around it but it often comes a bit of a surprise to people. What is the thing you hold sacred? What are your sacred values? And by that I mean not necessarily in a religious way but the things that are very dear to us that we try and live our lives by and specifically if someone offered you money to give it up not only would you uh, be less likely to give it up but you'd feel a bit offended that they might even have suggested it. We'll bracket out kind of children and family from this thing slightly more abstract. Okay. So, I mean, there are obviously things that are, I think, sacred to everyone. Like you say, it seems a bit obvious to say children, obviously, um, and, you know, things like treating your better man, treating your fellow man well and all that sort of stuff. But uh, specifically for me, I suppose, the thing that I get most angry is almost the word almost the most sort of uh that i find most difficult to imagine giving up would be is the sort of okay this sounds really um pretentious and we're just gonna have to get around that i guess um but uh is the um sort of search for truth i guess or or evidence you know i think that the there is there the world the world is about uh, the, the attempt to find out what how the universe really works and how humanity really works and how how things really are strikes me as important and i think it can be it, it is often sort of subsumed in a political uh, debates and things and uh, and the actual effort to find out what's really going on is is forgotten and i think that is that is that is the sacred value that i hold which is probably the the one which is not the that is not just the same one everyone else has i think does that make sense spell it out for me even clearer Every, i think everyone would say they want to believe things that are true and not believe things that are not true um but i think there it is more than just saying that that's because it's valuable or, you know, because it's useful to know things that are true in, in the pursuit of other goals. Uh, it seems to me that there is a sort of a sort of terminal value in it. That, that is, yeah, an intrinsic value. There, this is this is actually something that humanity alone is 
good at no other species as far as we know is capable of really like digging into the universe and seeing how it works it is something we specifically are good at and finding out how the universe works seems to me important not just because it helps you get things although that is also true but uh, i would rather know how things are even if that in some even if the state of ignorance was in some way blissful than to not. <laughs> I could make a Matrix red pill, blue pill reference here, but I won't. You can when you feel free, but then we end up in internet arguments. And, yeah. We do. Yeah. We won't go there. Um, thank you for letting me push you on that. I do think you're not the first person to find that question uh, difficult to answer intellectually because it forces us to self-reflect, but also emotionally awkward as a British person uh, to be sincere and honest about the things that we hold sacred because our uh, wonderful national trait of irony, uh, disguise, deflection through humour means that we try and the, the almost the worst sin is to be uh, pom- pompous, pious, sincere. Um, so we we sideslide into irony. Um, so thank you for being brave. That's right. The other thing is with that that the um, the trouble with it is that by saying this thing is the thing I hold sacred, it sounds like. You are saying, and I do this, and no one else does this. I alone, or I am part of the inner cadre who search for the truth, and, you know, you peasants on the outside don't yeah. bother. And it's not what I mean, but yeah. there's no way of saying it that isn't sort of, you know, it, it is a thing that I care about, and I, I sometimes, you know, I you know, I say on, on, on other, I see other people who care about other things just as deeply, and, and, I, and, so the, and I'm not suggesting they don't care about the truth, but I don't feel it's that, you know, say they believe that um, social, you know, there's, uh, socialist values or something like that or the um, uh, attempt, attempting to better think things for the poor is that so, then they might be willing to say things that they don't so completely hold true because they can improve that. And I completely understand that as a separate way of going about things. It's just not that I'm I'm very good at it. Yeah, That's, it's not your motivator. Exactly. I was thinking as you were talking that most people who I've spoken to about this have um, there's a formulation that came originally I think from Thomas Aquinas that runs r- right through Christian theology but also pops up in uh, areas in philosophy which is this idea of the good and the true and the beautiful as a um, one definition of God um, and impossible to separate but I do think that it may be a personality type where for some people the good uh, and they'll often formulate that in terms of love is is the thing that they'd hold as the sacred value and for some people it is the true yeah. what is what is really the world and sometimes um love and the good are not you know we, we don't want to kind of use those as ways of pulling the wool over people's eyes I would uh love to understand a bit more why that is a motivating value for you um and I want to reassure you that one of the reasons we're asking this question in the podcast is to help uh, normalise talking about the things that drive us and to encourage people, not therefore to use that as a sort of um, opportunity to accuse each other of hypocrisy. So this is one of the problems of being sincere in public life, really of saying anything in public life, tweeting anything, writing anything is uh, if you change your mind a little bit or you don't live up to your own uh, values and principles, which none of us do, then uh, almost the worst thing that you can get called is a hypocrite. So it's easier not to try. It's easier not to reveal your cards, to lay your cards on the table and show what your values are. So I'm troubled by that and I want to encourage us to be more honest and be prepared to say, yes, I'm a hypocrite, but so is everybody. Yeah. I'm trying. Well, I clearly am. You could go through my Twitter history and I'm sure you could find lots of times in which I've said things that I only only believe enough to say rather than believing true, you know, believing it is them. And then, and, and that I've then said, because I think it'll get numbers of retweets or something like that. You know, I, 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 I'm aware that I do not, that I'm not homo economicus or the perfect rational being or, you know, perfect truth seeking man or whatever. It just, that is, if I were to choose something, that is the thing I care about. Tell me, 
do you have a sense of why that dedication to truth or to intellectual honesty is so deep within you? On on one level, you can't ever choose why you are fascinated in things. You can probably post hoc rationalise them to some degree. But I mean, you know, I care about the things I care about because I have the genes I have and the upbringing I have and those are that is instilled you know I am from a, on my mum's side a long line of academics and things so there's a lot of nerdy truth seeking on that side there's maybe a Nobel Prize winner in your lineage perhaps perhaps one yes yeah um on my mum's grandfather and um so I don't so I think you know to some degree it's a sort of in, ineffable you were just you, you're born caring about the th- or by the time you reach adulthood you care about the things you care about and uh it's far I don't know how much choice you have over that. I and also if I you know if I'm saying they have an intrinsic value and then say and these are the reasons I do it then it sort of implies I've got a that they have a second. But I do I do think that believing things that are true is or or trying to find out things that are true and believing that your people you're de- debating are also a sort of you know are generally well-meaning and we're not in a fight over things and generally sort of trying to get towards the truth in a collaborative way is probably a a good thing for society i think that the you know we uh, the march of science and progress has come as we have learned more things um you know we it is easy to point to technological discoveries and things that have made that have had negative consequences but generally speaking the march of human progress has been a positive one we live longer we are ha- you know we are um uh, we don't die of as many diseases, you know, all, all the classic things. Um, and that is because we know more how the world works mm. than we did 500 years ago. And we can stop you from dying. We can get you to places faster. We can do all these things. So it seems to me that believing things that are true is positive as well, you know, positive in a secondary sense, as well as for me, valuable entirely in its own right. Interesting that you have talked uh about truth and seeking the truth about the world really quite interchangeably or at least implied with science and technology how did you first get interested in science the first my first memory of it and you know you always create your own you write your own creation myths don't you but my my first memory of getting really into it was probably reading the blind watchmaker in i would guess about 1994 thereabouts uh, I'd been about 13 or something you know prime prime Nerdy. Dawkins age <clears throat> yeah exactly yeah um also a uh, nerdy little teenager who hadn't yet quite worked out how to talk to girls and all that sort of stuff you know so the um but uh so I, so I read that and got and just I found it fascinating that you can uh, that you can sort of talk about um you, know, you can learn so much about the, the history of species and you know uh, he, that that book was one of Daw- one of Dawkins ones where he did get quite annoyed with creationists and uh, so uh, like uh, there was there was obviously also there's an intellectual fight going on there which was or an, you know an argument which is obviously gets you pulls you in doesn't it but it was just it was that and then I, a few a few others I read Selfish Gene afterwards and um and sort of and then at, when I went to uni I did philosophy at uni but I it was sort of it was a route into that was much part of the same thing. I, the, the, st- the stuff I found fascinating was like the idea of basing how you could base knowledge on, you know, creating a firm foundation of knowledge. And and it seemed to me, it came from that. I did undergraduate philosophy and then a master's and then a completely abortive and terrible attempt at a PhD. And it, it sort of came to me that once you've got past some basic assumptions, you know, that we 
can trust our senses to some degree, that the, we aren't a brain in a jar, you know, these sort of things. It struck me that the only, no, not the only, the best way of sorting out true beliefs from untrue beliefs would be science and data because you can codify it you can take it out of the realm of human bias you can take it you know as you know as far as we are able is the best method we have for avoiding um the predictable and systematic biases of human nature and to sort of try and codify a way of digging at things and you know, and finding weak signals in the noisy you know in noisy data and all that sort of stuff and yeah i'm careful not to say it's the only source of knowledge but i would be very happy to say that it is the best currently available um and is by far the most likely to point you towards things that are true rather than things that are not true talk to me then about that scientific method because my instinct is that it, it the reason it is as it is is that it rests on a particular anthropology. It rests on a particular understanding of what human beings are like. I don't know, I'm sure, as much as you about the history of science, but my uh, understanding is that there was a particularly kind of Puritan Calvinist influence on that anthropology as it was being developed by Francis Bacon and others as seeing human beings as um, fragile and fallible and therefore wanting to put these checks and balances in. Is it a understanding of the human that you recognise that's reflected in the scientific method? Absolutely the case and shown repeatedly um that hum- human humans are fallible and flawed and biased in quite a lot of extremely predictable ways that i'm sure you've read about as much as i have you know you can list the um various yeah, biases the, yeah the wikipedia list of biases Bias. is always a nice little and actually i've been writing a lot lately about how when science isn't careful it can let those exactly those biases in through the back door but but give them a an a veneer of scienceiness truthiness um, I, you know, let, because there are simple, you know, there are some qu- the heart of science is data, and if you are not very careful about the way you collect and analyze your data, you can find what looks like um, real patterns that are actually just born of randomness. And so, absolutely, humans are flawed. Science is made by humans and is therefore flawed. But the beautiful thing about it is that science has noticed its own flaws it is that you can turn it is self-referential you can turn these are not culturally sensitive tool culturally dictated tools exactly you know you can use the you can use the the method of take uh, make a hypothesis uh, take a control and a um <clears throat> and an intervention group or, or you know whatever your particular method is you know t- hy- hypothesis and observation uh you can use that on any um hypothesis you have and it it doesn't matter whether it's you know whether you're coming at it from any particular cultural background but those tools can be used to investigate why those tools go wrong and i i think that's rare among human methods of knowledge tools for knowledge and i i think it is enormously hopeful because it is it's it's a way you know and the best scientists i think or the best you know the scientists I like most and the scientists I enjoy spe- you know, enjoy talking to the most are the ones who are extremely self-aware of like, look, I don't trust my judgment on this. I'm going to do that. You know, that, so I think that is that is. So, yes, it, there there is a uh, there is a uh, tra- you know, science should be acknowledging human flaws. I'm not quite sure I'm answering your question exactly as you mean, but I but I, but it should be acknowledging human flaws because they are real and it's the best thing we have, I think, for avoiding them. For safety mechanism, I think it is that there is something incredibly beautiful and 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 humane in 
in the sense of a proper understanding of, of human anthropology and the scientific method. The um, motto of the Royal Society I learned recently is, n- uh, my, I don't know how to pronounce Latin, Nilis but no one does, oh, Nilius in verba. Yeah. Exactly, take no one's word for it or on no one's say so. And I think that there's a contradiction in there because there's a, a, a radical individualism about the scientific method and about the kind of rationalist enlightenment moment, which is seek the truth for yourself, seek knowledge, which um, I see very much reflected in you. And yet... The communitarian nature of truth is embedded in the scientific method because one person cannot reach it on their own. It has to be repeatable. It has to be checkable. It has to be peer reviewed. When we come to our big conflicts in society and how we talk to people across difference and some of the frustrations I see, um, I have several people in my life who are philosophers of science and very and and their great frustrations with people who dismiss dismiss science um, comes down to why don't you just take the scientists' word for it? Why can't you see that they are trustworthy? Why can't you see with the, about the experts? But if the whole point of the scientific method is, is the take no one's word for it, and we can't, none of us can be an expert in the number of things that we need to be an expert in, what do we do? How do we build that, uh, that communitarian bit, that trust bit, as well as the radical individualism of seeking knowledge for yourself? There are various like, questions there, I guess. Firstly, there are echelons of evidence, I think, that like... The it's it's not that if if someone would come up to me and tell me aliens have landed, uh, three streets over, uh, that is without value. That should shift my you know in a Bayesian statistics sense my prior belief my prior belief that the aliens have landed three streets over is close to zero. If someone came and told me that they had, I would shift my beliefs a little bit more towards that. It's not it's not without value, but depending. But if I were to see the aliens landing three streets over, it would shift my beliefs much more significantly on the sort of hierarchy of evidence like someone telling me something is not without value but it's not very valuable someone who has a phd in the subject telling me something is significantly more valuable and me being able to actually and the data for let's shall we say if i if i have the skills to read it which is very rarely the case the data taken from a reliable you know taken from a um uh scientific um taken using the scientific method and in support of hypothesis that is at the top you know or at least scientific studies especially sort of the the big conglomerate ones like meta-analyses are right at the top then you go down into uh, things like personal authority and so the the radical individualism is that the data is there for everyone to check you can go and look Given a rather more a better setup setup of open science than we currently have, but you know you could go to SciHub or something like that, and one of these one places that legally let you do it, and you can check the data yourself, or you could pay thirty five quid for a blasted uh, print off the uh, off an Elsevier website or something. But anyway, I'm drifting off the point here. Um, you could uh, so you, you could go and check if someone comes to you and says um, red M and M's cause cancer. You could say, well, why do you think that? And they say, well, I read it in a newspaper article, and you go and read the newspaper article, and it says it's by this from this study. And you can, you can, in theory at least, it is all checkable by everybody. In practice, you don't have the time to check everything because you have a life to live, um, and no one can be an expert in more than one thing, really. I don't, you know, I, I think that's maybe not completely true, but you know, John von Neumann could, but not most of us can't. And so you just have to learn who to trust. To some degree, it is going to be about learning who to trust. And it is generally easier and generally wiser, I think, to put your faith in scientists than randomly selected members of the public on certain subjects.
Hello, I am here in the Theos office with Theos's Director of Research, Nick Spencer. A few weeks ago, in fact, probably a few months ago now, Nick wrote a wonderful piece about Steven Pinker and his book Enlightenment Now. It was a really detailed, long read uh, review of that book, um, which went on to be one of our most read and most shared pieces of content ever. It's really brilliant. If you've not read it, you should go dig it out. And at the start of that article, Nick mentioned something called the Grey Pinker Scale, which is a kind of sociological uh, description uh, for... On the pinker end, you have people who are sure that we are progressing towards a bright future. And on the other end, you have John Gray, who thinks we are. Well, I'm sure we'll we'll hear from Nick. Um, So having written wonderfully on Stephen Pinker uh, this week, Nick's been out and about thinking about and talking to John Gray. How's it been, Nick? Well, I'm, I've kind of rebalanced the yin yang in the universe, I think. Pinker two months ago and John Gray this week. I reviewed Enlightenment Now and did a debate with Stephen Pinker that should be available online at some point in a month or two. And I did an interview with John Gray and have also done an essay review on his new book, Seven Types of Atheism. So, like I said, I feel as if I've restored order in the universe. Wonderful. Um, what is the argument of seven types of atheism? It, the clues in the title, as they say, this is Ron Seal, really. The, it does what it says on the tin. So it's a short book and it explores the idea that, in a sense, we do better to talk about atheisms rather than atheism. And it's John Gray actually following William Empson, who published a book called Seven Types of Ambiguity about 90 or so years ago, borrows the title, writes a bit about Empson in the book and looks at what he described as seven different categories, seven different ways that people throughout history, usually meaning thinkers, have been atheist. Now, this is sounding really familiar to me and I can't work out why. No, I'm scratching my head too. Um, it might have some similarity to a book I wrote a few years ago called Atheist, The Origin of the Species. I'm not, in case our lawyers burst in through the door here, saying Gray has in any way copied um, what, I've, what I've done, although he did provide a very generous commendation on my book. He is, let's you say, continuing and exploring a theme that is emerging in the sociology of religion, particularly the sociology of atheism over the last 10 years or so, whereby you know, if there are more people who are atheistic, it gives you more opportunity to study them. And the more you study, the more you realise that atheism is a complex phenomenon in the same way as religion is. And you can pass it and separate it and categorise it in the way that I did historically and he has done intellectually. Give me a few highlights of those different types of atheisms and maybe someone who you can assign to those categories. One of the strengths of uh, John's book is that he it pains to emphasise how approximately 71.4% of his atheisms, or five out of seven, are in some way descended from Christianity. Um, and that's a strength because he, as it were, unearthed some pretty deep philosophical and intellectual roots there. The weakness is that if so many of them are descended from Christianity, the way in which he categorises them separately doesn't fully work, or at least they bleed into one another as categories. So he starts with new atheists, he has secular humanists, he has political religious. He has misotheisms or anti-theisms. There's also a fifth one that, that, that escapes me. And they're all coherent as categories, but you could place certain things like Nietzsche or Saint-Simon or Comte or indeed the new atheists themselves in various categories. So it kind of works as intellectual architecture, but the more you look into it, the more you realise that in actual fact these five different rooms have all got pretty wide doorways between them. And part of the fun of reading John Gray is that he's pretty withering about some people who who is the uh, who receives his scorn in the most generous helpings. Um, well, it's the new atheism, new atheists um, for those who. Um, 
Um, perhaps like me, aren't entirely intellectually convinced by the new atheists. The first chapter is worth reading, um, and you will do so with a with a smile on your face because he writes very very well. Even like me, if you are very familiar with his writing, he is witty. He is obviously erudite, um, and he's pugnacious, and he does land a few very hard and telling blows on the new atheists. He is most scornful of them. He's pretty dismissal of many other kinds of atheism, although of course not all because he is an atheist himself. But they get. They get it with both barrels, really. Now, lots of our listeners and friends and allies would call themselves humanists or secular secular humanists. Some will also call themselves Christian humanists. And I know that sometimes they feel a bit frustrated with John Gray because he is very good at critiquing uh, where roots have come from Christianity or things have been kind of cherry-picked from other systems, but not so good at providing a kind of positive alternative. For if you are an atheist, how do you go about building a better world? And I can sometimes share their frustrations. So does he offer anything positive or constructive? First thing to say is if you are a secular humanist or an atheist humanist as opposed to, say, a Christian humanist, this book isn't going to endear you any more to John Gray than his previous ones do. You will feel that he is unduly dismissive of your view. And that is kind of an ongoing debate. With regards to your second point, does he build as well as destroy? Well, fundamentally in this book, he doesn't. And in the interview with him that should be available in a week or so, I think, I do talk to him a little bit about this. He emphatically denies the label of nihilist. Um, He is... You know, fully supportive of many, many things that actually secular humanists and indeed Christians and liberals and so on and so forth are equally supportive of. So strange it may be in many issues, particularly with regards to virtues of a liberal democracy, he would be a fellow traveller. He is, however, resolutely anti ideologies and this is what I specifically put to him when I spoke to him that ideology is the thing that he doesn't do and it's when you elevate certain human values and virtues and practices which he sees as beneficial and often normal and sometimes intuitive when you turn those into programmatic ideologies that should govern a society that's as far as he's concerned when the problem comes he inherits this from Isaiah Berlin and value pluralism which we talked a lot about it's when you turn local practices into universal programs that he really parts company. Well, do check out that long read that'll be up on the website by the time you hear this podcast and see the forthcoming interview with Nick and John Gray. Thank you so much. wind back a little bit to the the personal aspect as you may know one of the things I'm trying to do in this podcast is get us talking more honestly about what human beings are like um, and how that forms our public debates and the way we talk about difference um, and also more personally and more emotionally intelligently aware of the role of feelings really as well as um, thoughts and beliefs so we've heard that you encountered Dawkins as a young man um, was there any uh, spiritual or religious or non-religious background in your childhood what were the values that were swirling around in the air once, when I was about six or seven, I would guess, I persuaded my mum to take us to church because they talked about church a lot at school and it seemed important. We went to church. I have no memory of what went on inside the church. I know that when we came out of the church, my mum realised she'd locked her car keys inside the car and we had to call the AA man. Um, and uh, that's my only real memory of going to church for other than like the Harvest Festival. So uh, we never went back. I mean, I think I think I did a brief bit in Sunday school as well because some friends of mine. But yeah, I'm. I think my grandmother on my mum's side is 
She's not. She's not. I don't think she'd make complicated decisions about these things anymore. But she, um, yeah, I think she she had, was a uh, mildly religious to some degree. Um, my parents certainly aren't. My parents on my dad's side. Uh, I'm a, pretty much a third generation atheist. I think. And are there many uh, religious believers in your life more widely? A friend of mine used to go out with the girl who was Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Not widely. I mean, you know, I, I have worked with many people of various. Like, actually, I was going to go out for a drink this weekend with this week with an old Catholic friend from from Telegraph, but because of Spectator press day you know it works at spectator we couldn't make it work so they they, they, they do exist but my close circle of friends uh, is very much either atheist or agnostic or not ever really thought about it but just vaguely assume that there isn't a god you know i'm gonna ask you quite a personal question brace yourself uh and feel free to tell me where to get off if it's too personal but i have talking to spoken to a lot of atheists i spend a lot of time with atheists i was briefly one myself i have a Working theory that atheists break down into those who would like God to exist, uh, but can't quite get there. Someone like Julian Barnes who would say, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. There is a acknowledgement of a longing. And if someone was able to evidence the existence of God, there would be a, a joy and a relief. And then atheists who really, really really don't want God to exist. And in that category, obviously, I'd put the new atheist, you know, Christopher Hitchens, um, who who was actively look, looking to close the loopholes. So was very concerned about the kind of fine tuning of the universe argument, because it seemed to him to be a genuinely difficult question um, for, in the science religion debate. And for, from them, I've always seen the sense of a God as a threat to autonomy, God as a, a threat to, yeah, to, to, to individual choice, to free choice. And, and they're being really perhaps a deep-seated fear of that, which I can understand. If you had to pick one of those camps, where would you put yourself? I wouldn't. I would very much not put myself in either. I, um, uh, I, I would, if, if God exists, I would like to believe that he exists. Um, if God doesn't exist, I'd like to believe that he doesn't. I don't, I don't, the, there is, the trouble is that the word God can mean too many different things. I think if we're talking about an actual personality, then I'd have to know more about what kind of personality it was before I knew whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. As far as personal autonomy is concerned, I don't think there is any. Obviously, there is some extent to which we, you know, decisions we make are the products of our brains and therefore, you know, we, we are extremely complex and can act smart rather than acting dumb and all that sort of, you know, but... I mean, it doesn't really matter whether or not the universe is fundamentally um, deterministic or random and all, you know, uh, and it doesn't actually make any difference as far as I'm concerned. I, if I want to change my personality, then I, I must want that. I don't get to choose what I want. You know, I, I, any, if I'm interested in something, I didn't choose what I'm interested in. Nothing, if, if at any, if if at any stage I say, well, you know, he, he has the, say, let's say, I think someone's lazy. And I, or some people, other people think I'm lazy, which I undoubtedly am. They could say, "Well, what well, you know? It's, you want to just choose to work harder." So well, I, I don't want to work harder. Well, you could choose to, yeah, but I, I don't want to, and I don't choose what I want. And it, you can't. And you have to push, even if you say, "Well, you could choose to want." Well, you have to I'd have to want to choose to want. And at some point, you reach a point where you realise that you haven't chose. You don't have influence over the things you that you uh, that that drive you to do things. That is true, whether or not the universe is deterministic whether or not we have a mind or so we don't have choice over our cho- what what we want to choose so as far as i'm concerned 
there is literally literally no one is to blame for anything that's my fundamental fundamental point uh, like it's just it, it, there are reasons there are instrumental reasons to think that someone that we ought to punish people for doing bad and reward them for doing good because it will encourage them to do some more in future but there is no there is no sense in a in moral blame for people and yes you can then say ah oh, but what about hitler and i suppose i would logically have to say okay yes fair enough even hitler um that there's just no there isn't there is no blame in the universe there it doesn't make sense so when there is no there is no personal responsibility there's no no wrong and right or there is wrong and right we just can't control there it there is wrong and right we just have no there there are, there are clearly things that are bad and things that are good and they involve uh, and you can like to put the person who chooses the bad things you can't say well he should have chosen differently because he you you can't choose what you choose it, it doesn't you're a product of your genes and your environment and it just there's no way around it there's no philosophically as far as i can see sort of coherent way around like but then since uh since philosophers have argued over that for three thousand years uh, it seems odd to me to come to a very firm dis- dis- decision on it um uh this was a diversion a digression from something and i forget what exactly oh i don't mind it was a good one no. how how livable is that belief for you how does that affect the choices that you make and the things you want to want or don't want to want or as Paul said you know do the things you don't want to do it's extraordinarily yeah I mean I do find myself thinking about it quite a lot like um when I get angry with someone for doing something as there is a little voice in my head goes oh, why <laughs> why are you angry with someone for you know the because they're set up that way instead of set up the way that you are there's no but then you know it's the hume thing isn't it you know i i you you get lost in these things and then you go and then you shrug your shoulders and go and play pool um or billiards was what he played wasn't it um just go and play with billiards with your friend and forget about it all um so yeah so i i do i it does it does affect me how it does affect how i think about people and it, i i think it makes me more forgiving i guess like you know just uh, you when when i when i am in an argument with my wife or something and then you know, i just think well mate, i'm just as like you know we're both arguing for our preferences our preferences are different i'm just as likely to be wrong in whatever sense as she is so i, I tend i tend to then back down quite a lot for the sake of a quiet life yeah um yeah i, I don't know i I, th- I think i i think i allow it to influence my daily life but and, and i think it's probably a good thing to think i don't know I am intrigued, obviously, about how we talk across difference and particularly how we talk across differences of belief and unbelief. What are the things that you find frustrating or incomprehensible about uh, religious people, particularly talking in public, I guess, as you don't know many of them in your personal life? Um, um, okay. So the the truth-seeking thing, right. And, and uh, you, you asked me personal questions i hope you won't mind if you'll you I, I don't we've we've spoken in the past and you've never seemed to get offended when i say weird things so i'll I'm not very it strikes me you know we were talking about uh, adjusting your beliefs with mm-hmm. things so like it strikes me that the only way you can get from get move your beliefs closer to the you know uh, the, your your brain contains a map of the universe you want it to you want the map to correlate as much as you can with the territory um and as far as i'm concerned the only way you can do that is observation empirical you know whether that information you know information from the outside world and coming in and becoming entangled with your brain in some way so whether that information comes via someone telling you something or whether it comes from someone or from you directly observing things you, you you can't find out true things without you know by being inside your head um and my f- 
frustration to some degree, I think, with religion is I don't know how religious people, I don't know how, it doesn't feel like a belief based on observation. Um, And I don't think that, you know, I I don't know what, if, if it is, then I don't know what their, what the what they were expecting, you know, what, what their, what their hypothesis was when they're so, when they're so, you know, so like, it seems to me that the universe matches incredibly well the hypothesis of the universe, universe operates, uh, largely at random, the, you know, under these sort of fairly simple physical laws, there are, you know, there, and at more complex levels, you get things like evolution, that sort of stuff. And you can build up layers of complexity, but it comes down to particles moving at random in a vacuum, you know, and, I don't know what observation people have made that would encourage them to think that there is then some intelligence managing it all, whether or not a, um, a benevolent one or otherwise. I, I so I suppose that's that's. I suppose I'm an empiricist to my core, and I don't. Under, I can't. I find it very hard to understand how people could hold beliefs that aren't at least trying to be empirically based and. If they if they are, then I must be misunderstanding some, or mi- missing something, some empirical observation they're making, which I which I don't which I don't That's see. Very fair, and I think um, a lot of people f- feel that objection. I uh, instinctively want to reach for experts more qualified than I, and send you to someone like John Lennox, who's professor of pure maths at the University of Cambridge, has debated with Dawkins a lot, written a lot about science and religion, and can really unpack for you why he thinks there is good um, evidence to believe in um, the existence of God. But I'm going to try and be vulnerable, and I'm going to try and be personal, okay. and say that um, the, re- the reasons that I believe in God are based on a whole different set of types of evidence. So I came from a very broadly non-religious background, sort of vaguely culturally Christian on one side, definitely atheist on the other side. Um, had sort of a bit of exposure to church as a child because it was free childcare and then decided that it was all nonsense and, you know, stuffed by old ladies anyway, hoofed myself out of there. And then encountered a set of people who I uh, trusted uh, a young couple who I encountered. He was an RAF fighter pilot and quite young and cool. And I was 13 at the time. Yep. Very formative. Um, uh, his wife was very young and beautiful. Let's be blunt. We're, we're shallow creatures, yes. right? And they were the most compelling, intelligent, joyful people I'd ever met. And they seemed to really believe this stuff. Mm. So I spent a long time going along to their youth group and being the irritating person in the corner saying, what about suffering? What about other religions? What about homosexuality? And to be quite honest, they weren't particularly academic people. So their answers were often, um, let me go and read about that and get back to you. But they were sincere. They were careful. They were thoughtful and they were loving. So my initial journey was about human encounter, which is why I think this idea of why we believe what we believe and who we trust is really important. Um, they took me along to a Christian festival and I uh, decided that I was one of the atheists or agnostics or whatever I was at that point that wanted God to exist. And I think it's important that we admit that. that uh, and, and, that the, and the specificity of God at that point was important, that it was a, a specifically Christian God. Uh, I always come back to Pascal, you know, great intellectual hero of science and maths who... Um, yeah, No, not the wager. The moment that he becomes a Christian, he says, fire, fire, uh, talks about an ecstatic experience of God. And he says, not the God of the philosophers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God he encounters has a name, has a genealogy, has a family, and is not the God of the philosophers. And it's one of the reasons we've talked about this before, that I find the kind of philosophical apologetics arguments about God or not sort of not very interesting at all, because 
if God exists, there's a specificity about him and he doesn't fit in an equation. And even him is difficult, isn't it? But anyway, I prayed, God, if you exist, I'd like to know about that. That seems like a reasonably important thing to have um, awareness of. And then was knocked out cold for 45 minutes in a powerful ecstatic encounter of love and grace and joy and belonging. Um, That is still... The memory of it's still very powerful now. I got up off the floor and was like, oh, I guess that's the answer to that question. What the hell do I do about it? And then in some ways went on to fill in the intellectual gaps. I did what we all do, I think, which Jonathan Haidt talks about. I did the post hoc rationalization yeah. bit. And I went and I looked at science and religion and I did what Darwin did, which is oh, biology makes me lean towards atheism, but cosmology makes me lean towards at least theism. Um, I looked at the fine tuning of the argument of universe argument and decided that if the only way to fix that is either to believe in God or in a multiverse, they both feel like a faith position to me. And one of them has comes with a lot, a lot more bonuses. Um, so that was all right. Um And then I read the Bible and I read about the intellectual history and I decided, do I trust these people whose testimonies uh, are recorded in history? Do I think they're reasonably reliable historical sources as far as they can be? Why have we got this strange interjection, which is not like a novel and not like any other form of literature at the time in the ancient world? Why is Jesus so odd? Why is he so not interested in status in the way that the ancient world was interested in status? Why is this teaching so compelling? Why is it so radically? Why does, why does it challenge my ego so much? Why does it dethrone me as the centre of the world and call me into something bigger than myself and offer me ways of living which seem to be ho- helpful for us, wholesome for us, mm. help us live more honestly as human beings in community and deal with our own shit and other people's shit and our fallenness and our fallibility gives me framework for thinking about that so that the intellectual things fell into place later and that they're not watertight that all all of our beliefs that there are there are some things that um cause me to question deeply and i try and give those full attention and deal with the existential angst that that brings up maybe i've based my life on something that's nonsense um and then there's other things and repeatedly more things that really strengthen my conviction that there is something good and true and beautiful here, that there is something worth pursuing here, that there is a source of love and strength beyond us um, that's worth engaging with. Um, So it is not, I think, for most Christians that whether it's true or not is irrelevant. It's if it's true, we're not going to be able to prove it and most of our empirical observation is personal experience, but usually quite powerful personal experience. And then we are choosing who to trust. We are choosing which voices we listen to. Um, so I would say personal experience and historical testimony and all of those things count as evidence. They don't count as knockdown evidence. I want to give you a copy of Unapologetic by Francis Buffett, who says, basically, we're not going to win this. <laughs> like, no one's going to win this. So let's uh, at least listen to the imaginative world of the other. Um, forgive me, that was a long... No, 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 it was, it was fascinating. That was fascinating. I um, I don't think I've ever spoken to someone about a a religious experience like that before. I think, it is, I think it's something people probably avoid talking about quite a lot. I remember being part of an RSA commission on spirituality, uh, Matthew Taylor's outfit on the Strand. They were trying to... The, the tagline's 21st century env- enlightenment, and they'd managed to kind of relax their shoulders enough to go, maybe spirituality's part of the mix here, but not religion. You know, spirituality possibly is a way of helping us overcome our ego and our fallenness, et cetera, et cetera, to make the world a better place. I was invited as the one out religious person. Yeah. Um, and the, resi- the internal resistance to being honest about my experiences as a highly educated person, you know, sort of, you know lowly member of the metropolitan elite um but i started talking honestly and then i i spoke i talked about 
praying in tongues because that's another weird thing that I do that came out of that experience that happened on that day. I pray in tongues. I just speak in a language I don't understand to express my heart in conversation with God. And I have never seen a room go more like awkward, <laughs> shift in our seats, look down. This is weird. Who's this weirdo? But then we went to the pub afterwards. And once we were out of that environment, everyone was like, so tell me more about that. That sounds weird. And how do you, you know, and had a lovely chat about it. So if we can overcome our... Yeah. And again, it comes back to Britishness. It comes back to a fear of vulnerability and a fear of looking stupid and a fear of letting out our kind of messy human experience of the world. I'm really interested by that. I think the, uh, I think the, um, uh, because it sort of speaks to a problem of evidence in a way. Like you having this amazingly profound personal experience is of almost zero value to me as evidence. But to you, it must be really hard not to, I mean, and I, I, I really don't want to get this into a sort of me trying to talk you out of anything, so it's I'm not okay. going to do that. It's okay. I, I know all the stuff about the, you know, I was in a room full of people singing. I was young. I was suggestible. I, I have, you know, I spent a year, about 10 years later, trying to be an atheist because th- some of the intellectual stuff was really niggling at me. So, you know, I studied ecstatic experiences, what's going on in the brain, the neurotransmitters, hormone release, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of which I know. But I have that experience repeated. Like, I will go into my room and say, God, I'm wondering if you're still here. Is this nonsense? And I will experience the presence of God. Not every time and irritatingly unreliably. But if it was just that, I don't think I would believe. If it was just uh, the fact that I think the science and religion stuff is unnecessarily kind of polarised, I wouldn't believe if it was just the evidence of the scriptures and people talking down the years who've had similar experiences, I don't think I would believe it. If it was just meeting people whose lives seem to me ex- extraordinarily compelling, I don't think that would be enough to make me believe because it's hard to believe, right? We can't see God. My three-year-old goes, where is God? And I think, oh no, what if this is all nonsense? <laughs> you know, th- this is not an obvious thing to believe. The weight of it is pretty compelling together. Yeah. I mean, that's just, it seems to me that there is, that there is a just, yeah, a fundamental problem there that it's 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 this the inter- that the revelation can't ever be evidence for anyone else and so if you don't get it then there are no then there is no evidence i mean i also want to say that i i think i think not knock on wood in fact that's not the right not appropriate thing but i suspect that were i to have this profound sense, which I gather, you know, which I know people do have spiritual experiences that are not linked to Christianity specifically, that I would not, that I would think of that as a fact about my brain rather than a fact about the universe mm. or the universe outside my brain, I should say. But again, it's very easy for me to say. It also seems to me to be a false dichotomy mm. because should God exist, mm. is it not likely that he would communicate through your brain yes but i mean okay so but presumably he's communicating a true fact about the universe which is that he exists whereas i think i would assume it is and who knows because it sounds like it'd be a pretty transformative experience um that i would think it was a true i would i would not think that this experience in my brain relates to things out you know that that is a, a signal coming in from outside but is rather something going on inside but I don't know because I haven't had it. And I certainly don't want, you know, like, <laughs> it, it won't surprise you to learn that I'm not convinced of the nature of God or the existence of God because of it. But and There'd be a number of people who had had a similar experience, people who you thought were otherwise sort of sane and reasonable. At what point would people that you knew and trusted 
Is there is there a number at the point where you would go, okay, this is looking increasingly likely, even though I've not had that experience, I am willing to believe that you, what, what you know, what would tip it for you? Or is it really that nullius, is that really that the Royal Society? Believe it on no one say so. I, 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 okay, so I would, what I would think I would need is for these revelations to contain some information which could be independently verified and uh, so so for example you know if um say uh 10,000 in fact not even that if three people i knew under relatively uh, well um uh, re- relatively sort of controlled circumstances would say i've had this experience and it's also that it has given me the um uh, they've uh, they managed to show uh, in in this experience i was revealed the prime factors of the number 16673554222 you know so some some fact which they couldn't reasonably have got and which could be given to them from outside by a, super, a supremely intelligent being so that i could say okay so this is not just the circuits in your brain Going haywire is an un, a pejorative okay. term. You know, you know what I mean. It's not. It is not. It is not a. It is not a signal from inside your brain, but it's a signal from an intelligence outside your brain. Then I think even yeah, three people doing that so for independently, so that I could be relatively sure that this isn't a big trick. That would be enough to seriously calibrate my beliefs towards something is going on here. Now I would need something more to make it. This is specifically God rather than. Something you know, there, there, there is something weird in the universe which I don't understand. Um, but I think I have powerful. You know, uh, loads and loads of people saying I've experienced something incredibly powerful. I mean, people have experienced incredibly powerful things from meditation, from psychoactive drugs. I have probably shouldn't admit this on uh, podcast, but I, I yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fine. I, I, I took magic mushrooms a few times years ago. They're great, by the way. And um, I, uh, <laughs> uh, and I, you know, think, oh my god, I, I understand everything now. That oh, okay, that makes sense. And then you wake up and no, did I? I don't know. You know, so uh, just I want to get this off this in a sec because I want to ask about sure. your experience with media. But this is fascinating. Why do you think you do have that? Which so- what sounds to me like an extraordinarily high bar. Uh, you're not you're not willing to make Pascal's wager that it is not enough that you have a hunch that it might be true and it seems good and therefore to go with it. Why would it need to be a completely incontrovertible and entirely verifiable for you well, to believe in a god? Because I think it's such an extraordinarily unlikely hypothesis. I think intelligence is really difficult to make. Like intelligence is like I'm, I'm writing this book about AI and. It is just like the, you know, programming a computer to do really simple things is really hard. You know, I, I can't do it. I haven't got a clue how to do it, but I speak to people who know a lot more about it than I do. And they've, and it's really, you know, and it is not just, it is not a simple unitary thing. It is not that the idea of God as this sort of, you know, the, uh, you know, I think it was, okay, I, I read, did a lot of the sort of Leibniz and Spinoza and everyone in there. And, I, and the idea of God as a substance, this sort of unitary substance, this pure, simple thing, just doesn't make sense. You, the, you are to, uh, making intelligence, the ability to make good decisions and make, you know, uh, affect the universe in ways that you want is incredibly, it in, requires a complex thing, you know, do, doing, com, make, making these complex decisions, it requires, you know, and, and it, it requires actual physical work, you know, the, 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 um, you know, the thinking machine, you know, the, the reason, 
Maxwell, do you know Maxwell's demon? The uh, anyway, uh, the, uh, that's a, a, a digression too far down the thing. But the, the, you know, the, the brains need brain, brains are complex because they need to be complex. They are energy demanding because they need to be energy demanding. The idea that there it can be just a sort of simple thing outside the universe which just exists without explanation, which just um, uh, came into being without anything designing or without sort of the slow process of evolution creating it. For you know, the, these are sort of ratcheting up of complexity. It, that strikes me as something that needs a lot of evidence, whereas the multiverse, which you mentioned, right, mm. doesn't. It doesn't at all. It just like because we could never know it or see. It. Well, no, because the, if 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 a universe can be created once, okay, there's this, there's this. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna misinterpret mis explain this somewhat, but there is in computer science there is a a formulation, a sort of formalization rather of Occam's razor. Occam's razor look for the simplest thing. You say, well, the simplest, you know, simplest explanation is always. The, the old lady's, lady down the street is a witch. She did it, you know. But actually, if you were the the what the the form, the formalization in computer science is um, Kolmogorov complexity, or uh, and that is roughly speaking, what's the shortest computer program you could write to get this thing to do? And to write, if you wrote a computer program saying that the old lady down the, down the street did it, she and she's a witch. All you have you still have to explain in a computer language what a witch is. You have to explain, and you still then have to say what she actually did to write. And you know, to write to write a computer program being God would be a lot of code. But if, to write a computer program that makes one universe, or to make a computer program that writes infinite universes, it's the same thing with one of the values changed. Just make it again and again and again and again. So the complexity required, the difficulty required for a for the God hypothesis is vastly greater than the hypothesis, the complexity required for the multiverse hypothesis. So if you want me to believe in God, I need a lot more evidence for it. That is helpful and I think will be even more helpful to our listeners who understand coding because <laughs> some of that lost me. I feel like in terms of how we um, talk better to people different from ourselves and how we understand better um, belief and non-belief, that's been really illuminating for me. Um, talk to me a bit more broadly about uh, difference in society because you are a journalist. Uh, you work in a world that tends to favour extreme views or at least c clear views. And you've worked in uh, in different places, including the Telegraph, which I believe wouldn't naturally be your political home. How was that? It was, well, it was great. They paid me to uh, write things down, which was all I ever wanted from life. But the, um, yeah, it was, it was revelatory, if that's not an unfortunate choice of words, given our conversation so far. But the because I was surrounded by people who believed diametrically the opposite to me, or not diametrically the opposite, believe very different things to me about what the best thing to do in the world was, um, believed very differently to me about uh, how, you know, the government should proceed, what uh, the seeking of, of the good is. And from being outside, you know, as I was, uh, in my youth, I was, I'm I'm an absolutely archetypal centrist dad now, but I was very much a more of a lefty in my youth, and I've done the traditional thing. But I, you know, I, I went there thinking I'll, I'll put up with these evil Tory monsters, but I, you know, I'll never be part of them. But but also take their money. No. Um, the uh, they I was just surrounded by really intelligent, thoughtful people who I disagreed with, but cared about things and wanted to do well. And that's not uniformly true, but I'm sure it wouldn't be uniformly true at The Guardian either. Never worked there, so I don't know. The, um, you know, the, there is, the people are still self-interested and people are still... Um, and some people, you know, uh, people are, uh, exist on a spectrum of how 
passionate and and how uh, self interested and how um, sort of uncaring they are, of course. But there were people there who who obviously it's not that they thought, well, I, you know, I'm I'm a Tory and let's screw the poor. They thought this this these methods, these sort of free, you know, this more free market method, say, is going to be a better way of getting things to poor people. Now, I still think they were wrong and so lots of them were wrong in lots of ways i think my 26 year old self was wrong in lots of ways as well um but it was it was fascinating to see to sort of be among them and you realize you're not dealing with monsters and i don't think i ever really thought they were monsters but you know it's, it has given me a real sort of strong sense since then of like when i see someone who's being who, who, with whom i really disagree on the internet let's face it is generally on the internet um, my instinct is much less to think, well, this, that person is a, yeah, a moral mutant who doesn't care about, you know, who yeah. doesn't care about anyone but themselves and, and wants, you know, is a sort of cackling supervillain. And it's very easy to... It's a shame. Yeah, I know. The world is desperately short of cackling supervillains. But I sort of think that is... Um, I, I I I I would prescribe it actually as a, as a a course for anybody is to go and spend some time among people you really disagree with and realize quite rapidly that they are not awful or not uniformly awful you know and and that they are they are in they have you know uh, they generally want to make the world a better place in just as much as you do or to some degree anyway so so I found I found that really fascinating I also found it. Like writing there, I th- you know, they they let me as a lefty write some quite political things uh, on, in their website. So they obviously weren't they they, they were not uh, truth fascists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hegemonic trying to st- trying to stop the word getting out or anything like that. So so you, I'm, I've come out of it feeling much more willing to tolerate a broader circle of political beliefs than I did. Um, and I think I think that's healthy. I think I think it. Uh, especially now i think that's wise and healthy uh, but whether i should say that about my own beliefs i don't know and you uh, spend a lot of time on twitter and you're a journalist you're in terms of when we think about our public debates you're you're pretty much in them what uh would be your prescription for how we could uh, have them more healthily not descend into our tribal trenches and throw mud at each other quite so much it's tricky it's tricky i've been thinking about this and, I, and we've spoken about it in the past and i remember having some opinions which I'm not sure I share with myself anymore but the you had said to me in the past that you just tend to mute people I who I do mute people an awful lot and I stand by that because there are people who I, I will um, partly because I've and there's no way of saying this without sounding like a bit, a bit of a dick but I've got quite a lot of followers not that many but you know enough that yes exactly it's just truth yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and if you're if even just it's actually it's amazingly sort of off-putting to your equilibrium to be it to be it'd be called to be have people be rude to you even just once out of a, you know so so if if people are being rude and not in any way sort of engaging with the um spirit of sort of conversation and debate then i will either ignore or mute and and if i don't know who they are i will generally mute just because i haven't i haven't got the time or the mental strength and you know i, I, I just find my mental health is, is better when i do that um the traditional answer of you should follow people who you don't agree with i do think is true and i do follow people who are sort of on the other ends of or other areas on the spectrum to me but i've found re- recently that that's almost because people and maybe it's just as bad choices on my part that there are people who you know you follow these people and then they spend a lot of 
their time finding terrible examples of people on the sides of you on other and the only sort of look at them going look at this idiot from over there on the other side and you say well so I, i'm more and more trying to i just I'm just trying to find people who i i who who are either I just want people who are thoughtfully engaging with stuff, but so far I have no good answers to anything, really. It's really interesting. The theme in what you said was actually about emotions, about our emotional reactions, about your emotional reactions when someone's aggressive to you and about your emotional reactions when it feels like someone from your tribe Mm. is being attacked. I have a bee in my bullet about the role of feelings and our lack of awareness of our own feelings, of our own things that are being triggered when we're engaging across difference and what might it mean to be more honest about the things that we're feeling, not in a kind of shrill, hysterical, because, you know, there are there are also are quite a lot of feelings on the internet, aren't they? Mainly rage, mainly self-righteous rage. Um, but if the kind of fear that's underneath that or the unsettledness or the um, could be handled a bit better, even if it's just individuals learning to handle their own emotional reactions. That seems to be at least part of the answer. Yeah, it does. And one thing I have one thing I have started doing, which um, I tweeted a piece, oh, some long, complex piece by some nerdy writer that I like, and someone started arguing with me about what the content I said, oh, I like this piece. And someone argued with me, a friend of mine, said, oh, but no, this is really bad. And it was like, yeah, it was, it's a 5,000-word piece, and he started tweeting back to me three or four minutes later. And I'm like, okay, like, what, what I ended up doing was just... DMing him and saying, "Look, I will, I will discuss this with you by DM. I won't argue with you about. It. I'm not going to defend someone else's views on thing. But I, and I, I now have done that. Any sort of even vague disagreements, I tend to take to direct message because it seems to me you can do that. You've got more length for a start. There's not the public thing. You're not playing to the gallery or exactly. your own tribe. You haven't got your audience of people who will then who will then step in. And so, so you can, so so you can say, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying, but." Uh, you know, and expand on it and and it's this sort of little private room in which you can discuss and i and i found that vastly more productive than trying to get really complicated points into 280 characters um and doing it in front of an audience of being People bloodthirsty yeah exactly so i that's been that's been really uh, it's been thoroughly better at keeping me my, me sort of from getting, I, honestly I, I if I tweet something that I think Twitter and specifically the Twitter left which is very you know I don't actually care if the Twitter right the horrible alt right get angry at something I write because they tend to just send me insults and it's fine but I tend sort of get the impression when you get on the wrong side of the Twitter left that they might try and get you fired which is less fun um so. I just I get really anxious when there are fights on, yeah. uh, on you know, when when I tweet something and then a thousand people go oh my god this person thinks it's, uh, honestly did, like, you're a transphobe or whatever yeah, the exactly, kind of thing yes. of the moment is yeah exactly yes exactly and you know I so therefore I, there are whole swathes of topics that I just don't think of that Twitter re- we're talking about Twitter let's face it there are other there are other me- means of communication that are much better for these things but the the specific specific, specific nature of Twitter of short bite sized chunks um, and and enormous public uh, sort of visibility, which really and and sort of tribes, which really don't lend themselves to anything complicated. So I I I have tr- increasingly tried to avoid openly discussing sensitive topics on Twitter because I think it is not. I'm happy to talk about them in longer things or in person or yes, exactly. But not uh, generally speaking, I think Twitter is bad for them. And when I do have ever tweet something which gets into that stuff i try not to talk about it on open twitter but go to dms with someone and to and have, have the conversation in a quieter calmer little library off to the side you know that is your sacred podcast top tip for yes. the week um tom there's so many other things we could talk about i hope we'll have you on again at another point but thank you so much for being personal and honest and open and being prepared to have a conversation across difference 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sacred. We'd really love to know what you think. You can get in touch via Twitter, which is at sacred underscore podcast, or email us at thesacredpodcast at gmail.com. We'd also love to ask a favour. If you're enjoying the series and you think it's important that we have big questions about difference, we'd love to enlist your help to spread the word. Please think about posting a review or rating us on iTunes or any other of your favourite podcast providers. Share on social media and tell your friends. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos or come to one of our Central London events, you can connect via our website at theosthinktank.co.uk.